It says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed among you might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Glance down to verse 11. Let's read these last few verses as well. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit as we continue to work our way through this book of the Bible together. We thank you for what you've taught us in the first four chapters and pray that by your spirit, Lord, as we now study what's in the fifth chapter, that you would continue to speak to us through the power and the ministry of your spirit. So Lord, let us hear as your church what it is and as your sons and daughters, that which you want to say to us this day from the word of God. And speak to us by your spirit's ministry, we always ask expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's fair to say that nobody enjoys participating in surgery, but sometimes that is a needed process. And though it may be painful to do something like perhaps remove a spreading cancerous tumor in the body, that may yet be necessary, honestly, to preserve the overall health and the survival of the rest of your body. Well, in the same manner, nobody likes confronting error, but sometimes the practice of sin in someone's life needs to be directly addressed. It needs to be confronted. It needs to be dealt with in action. And the church is not only to just preach against practicing sin, the church, honestly, biblically, is also supposed to protect itself from sinful indulgences being practiced and the polluting of God's family because sin is not being properly addressed. And that's really what this chapter is about. It's about confronting sin. It's about exercising church discipline. In fact, I have to admit, it was kind of difficult trying to come up with, they always ask me, the guys do for a title to the message. And I'm thinking, how do you title that? kick the brother out? I mean, wh wh what do you say for a passage like this in the Bible to title it? Well, clearly it's dealing with confronting sin and exercising church discipline, not being tolerant of willful sin, but taking a stand against it due to its very harmful impact among the church family. If you look with me back in verse one, Paul identifies first the sinful problem that was happening among the church at Corinth. He says in verse one, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That is among the church. 
and such sexual immorality, he says, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that is, the unsaved world, pagans or heathens, that a man, here's what was going on, has his father's wife. So Paul identifies here what was transpiring. And let me say on the front side, please take note, this was a unique situation that was transpiring within this particular local church. This was not someone, listen, who had made a mistake, who had stumbled and fallen into some sinful error and felt grieved over what they had done and wanted to make it right and was now seeking to be repentant. Look, that's a completely different scenario. And that's going to happen from time to time. People are going to fail. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to even to some degree shipwreck. But if their heart is broken and they're grieved and they want to repent and make things right, well, that's a whole different scenario. And we respond to that in a whole different way. This was an ongoing practice and really open participation in willful defiance of God's ways in an ongoing and prolonged way, yet still wanting to be an active part of the church family and for it just to be accepted, that this would just be something that would be allowed to take place and yet still wanting to participate in the church life. What was happening was a sinful practice, we're told twice in verse one for emphasis of sexual immorality. And sexual immorality refers to any form of improper sexual expression outside of God's design. And God's design for sexual activity is that it is to be expressed within the covenant boundary of a marriage relationship between a biological male, and we have to say that nowadays, and a biological female, that a man and a woman within the relationship of marriage within that boundary as a gift from God are to experience the expression of sexual activity. That is God's design and God's boundary. Whenever sexual activity is taken outside of that boundary, it violates God's design, it disregards God's will, and it automatically becomes not only selfishly dishonorable, but it also becomes very damaging. And Paul will talk about it even in the next chapter as we get to that. So again, there was not only open sexual immorality happening among them, but as you can tell from verse 1, it was pretty distorted on top of that what was going on. Paul says here that a man within the church that assembling among them for worship and gatherings actually had, he says, verse one there, his father's wife. Now, when it says he had his father's wife, the clear implication is they were living together romantically and engaging in sexual activity. And he says, and this was with his father's wife. So not his mother, but what would seem to be his stepmother. That though this woman was married to his father, he had apparently stolen her away from the father. And these two were now living in a relationship instead. So not only do you have sexual sin going on, but then you add into that, there was adultery and even a degree somewhat of incest that was taking place that this man was now living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. So again, this sexually immoral situation was happening, the Bible is trying to indicate to us in a very brazen manner, whereby this is an ongoing thing, publicly living in this way, and this man felt no shame over it. He had absolutely no interest whatsoever to putting an end to it. He just expected it to be embraced. Hey, this is my right. This is the way I want to live, and I still want to be a part of the church. And he just expected that it should be something that the church should tolerate and had no interest in turning from it. And Paul expresses his shock 
and his disdain over this whole matter. That's why he says in verse 1, it's actually reported. The idea is this was something that wasn't just going on in private that the couple was doing and nobody in the church knew about. This was something that was known within the church. It even seems to have been known outside in the community that there was sexual immorality being practiced amongst the local church. And Paul was saying, and no one even seems to mind. Nobody even seems to care in the whole church. It's actually being reported. It's not like this was something, again, privately. They were engaging in this behavior, and everybody in the church knew about it. They were continuing to come and sing the songs, and who knows, maybe they were ushers in the church and everything else, and yet they were living in this way. And Paul says, I can't believe this is actually, actually going on among the church. Paul says, I I actually can't believe this is what's being reported among Christians, among the local church. Now he is expressing his shock that it not only was something utterly out of place with God's family, which should have been living honorably according to God's design. But I think the greater thing is Paul says, this is something not only condemned in God's word. He says it's not even condoned in the society outside of the church. You see what he's saying there, verse 1? He says there's sexual immorality, and he says, as is even not named among the Gentiles. That is among the heathen out in the world. Paul says, look, this kind of activity, what this man is doing with his father's wife, living together and having sexual relations, this isn't even acceptable outside by the world standards. He's saying the world doesn't even condone this kind of stuff. Again, understand, too, in the Greek and Roman cultures, they had very, very loose morals. Study the history a little bit. I mean, these were sexually charged, promiscuous societies. I mean, it was pretty much an anything-goes behavior in sexual expression. So it is astounding for Paul the Apostle to say that what is going on in that sexual sin, even people in the world don't condone that kind of stuff. Even people outside the world would condemn that kind of activity. And yet Paul's saying it's reported that it's going on inside the church and no one seems to mind. Again, this is the shock and chagrin that Paul is dealing with here. Truly a very sad and disgraceful thing, isn't it? When the church, which is supposed to be a light of God's value system and morality and upholds some standards of righteousness and decency, and yet the church ends up displaying less morality than the world boy that's always a really sad and unfortunate thing yet truth of the matter be both in the church in corinth and sometimes throughout history churches can actually allow this kind of stuff to unfold and this is what paul was greatly concerned about that they were engaging in this and they were accepting it all in the name of tolerance And in the name of tolerance, they were just kind of dismissing this. And how disgraceful to the testimony of our Lord. And this is what mattered deeply to Paul's heart. So after Paul identifies the shocking sinful practice that everybody knew, he now indicts both the church as well as the leadership, I believe, of their own error in this matter. He says, verse 2, and you, that is who are allowing this to go on, are puffed up. That is, you are swelled up in pride. And you've rather not mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So the church apparently puffed up. They were actually proud regarding how they were handling this sinful matter that was going on amongst them. And probably were no doubt boasting how they were such a tolerant group of people. 
that they were such a merciful, unjudgmental congregation. And hey, you just come as you are and do what you please. And we don't judge people around here. And, and we, we are loving and, and, and hey, man, unity, brother, and everything goes. And we don't want to judge anyone. And the church and its leaders apparently thought very highly of themselves. That's the idea of being puffed up. They thought highly of themselves like they were showing great love and tremendous acceptance. And that somehow they're being non-critical and being open-minded, avoiding being judgmental because they didn't want people to look at them as how dare you judge people's preferences. How dare you judge other people's perspectives? And they felt like they were no doubt probably very progressive. We're very progressive around here. We don't condemn anyone's preferences or anyone's actions. And they were proud of how they focused mainly, listen, on making people feel comfortable in however they wanted to live rather than being concerned about what is pleasing to God and what honors the Lord Jesus Christ and is healthy for the family of believers. And Paul says their errors, this sinful conduct should have caused them, he says, verse two, to actually be mourning. He says, I can't believe you're proud instead of rather mourning over this. That word mourning that Paul uses there is the term that speaks of the grief and the sorrow that someone feels inside when they experience the death of one of their loved ones. Paul says that should be a reaction because sin grieves the heart of God. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 that we're also not to grieve the Holy Spirit who lives within us and is among us. So this should have deeply grieved them, this sinful activity, that somebody who claimed to be a Christ follower and was a part of their church regularly was engaged in this conscious contradiction of God's word in the way that they were living. Again, not somebody stumbling in error. That's not what this is about. But someone who was consciously and willfully living in open, sinful rebellion to the word of God. And rather than be sad and they just accepted it and embraced it in a spirit of tolerance, not wanting to be perceived as judgmental. Apparently, this church had a very weak view of how wrong sin was a very weak view of how damaging and harmful sin is. And apparently, though they thought highly of themselves, apparently they thought pretty low of God. They thought pretty low of God's importance and God's value and what mattered to God. And they cared more about themselves when they really did what God cared about, apparently. And they should have, out of love for the Lord, Paul says, verse 2, they should have mourned that he who had done this thing might be taken away From among them. So again, they were utterly guilty of inaction. Again, perhaps out of concern of being perceived as judgmental, they just kind of dismissed it and they were delinquent in their spiritual duty as a church. They were doing nothing about this. The leadership was failing and there was no way this should have been accepted. There's no way this should have been continuing to transpire among them and allowed to continue without being properly confronted. So Paul being a man of deep conviction, being the one who was indeed the leader of the church there in Corinth, he had planted it. And Paul, who I always love to see in the scriptures, seeming to have a real spiritual backbone, steps into the situation now after being hearing about it. And as their leader, he begins to give them some instruction regarding this. He says, verse three, for I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit. I'm with you in heart, he says. I've already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. So as their leader, notice he guides the way through now this difficult matter. 
And quite honestly, this is part of what any true leader must do. You have to at times address problems and confront issues. And sometimes those that others don't want to get involved in. You have to take the lead at times to make hard decisions and do what is right, even when it's not popular, even when it is difficult and hard to work through, to guide people in a way to resolve things Ultimately, this is what a true leader does, and Paul demonstrates that in what he's doing here. He says to this church that he planted, and no doubt he loved and cared about the people there in Corinth. He says, look, verse 3, I may not be with with you physically. I'm writing this letter from a distance, but he says, I am with you in spirit. In other words, he's saying, look, my heart is with you in this difficult matter. And Paul says very clearly, verse 3, as he starts to give instruction now, I honestly don't even need to think through or pray about this matter any further. He says, honestly, what's happening is pretty clear and it's moral error and it's harmful defects. And he says, I love you all enough to tell you I've already judged this man. I've all, I don't even need to hear any more details. I've already judged this man for the evil that he is doing and the sinful propagation of his behavior among the church. And it's almost as if Paul's saying, look, I'm not worried about being perceived as judgmental. It really doesn't matter to me if I'm perceived as judgmental. He said, I've simply made a proper spiritual judgment on the matter in light of the truth of God's word and what the Holy Spirit would make evident. This observable bad fruit is not only going to ruin this man's life, but it's going to have a rotting process on the rest of the church family as long as it continues to be disregarded. And look, using the authority of scripture and the ministry of the Holy Spirit guiding us, There are indeed times when God's people are to make spiritual judgments on certain matters at hand. It's something that we are required to do. Things that are transpiring amongst us as Christian family, especially when a person, listen, feels entitled to an allowance of practicing sin. When someone feels they have an entitlement and a special allowance to live in ongoing sinful practice, there are times that judgments have to be made spiritually. Now, I know right away our humanity or people outside, wait, wait, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus say, don't judge, man, right? That's always the favorite verse of people in the world. And that's in the, back, the, the backslider's Bible. It's in their little promise book, very first term. Judge not, lest you be judged. And, and look, Jesus indeed instructs that we cannot judge someone's heart intent. I can't judge what's going on as far as the, uh, you know, the motivation of someone's heart when they do something. I can't judge someone eternally because I'm not God. But at the same time, Jesus also says we're supposed to inspect fruit. And that when we inspect fruit and examine behavior, expecting fruit allows us to see good or bad fruit, which tells us the condition of someone spiritually. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, when he talked about judge not, which everybody likes to claim, Jesus was instructing there not to have a judgmental attitude, a spirit of judgmentalism, where you're always kind of condescending. You know, and you'll pick on the tiniest thing. Somebody may love Jesus and be walking with the Lord closer than you are, but you'll pick some little legalistic thing to beat him up over. That's called you got a judgmental spirit and you're missing the mark there on that. And that's just as much sinful as anything else. Listen to Jesus' heart. He says, judge not that you may not be judged for with the same measure that you judge, you will be judged. Why do you look at the speck, little tiny thing in your brother's eye? but you don't consider the plank, the two by four, in your own eye. 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove that speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Take notice, Jesus says, look, sometimes we are completely ignoring some major thing in our life and yet we're concerned about a tiny little error in someone else's life or it may even be an error, just some thing that we see in their eye. Hey, I, I see a speck in your eye there. I mean, isn't that bothering you? you should... And the reality is, is what may be the plank in our own eye? It may not even be some sin. It may be your judgmental attitude. And that's why you're seeing the speck, this tiny little thing. You're concerned about some tiny little thing in somebody else's life. And Jesus says, what about the big plank that you're not dealing with in your own life? And sometimes it's just a very judgmental, critical spirit. And that's not what Jesus wants us to have. But take notice, Jesus says, first remove, he says, the plank from your own eye. Listen, then he says, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from someone else's eye. What's Jesus indicating? Don't be judgmental in attitude, but deal with your own life. And then once you're dealing with your own life in an attitude that's non-judgmental, sometimes maybe you do need to help somebody else with other areas in their life, but it's to be done in the right spirit and the right attitude. Not that we're simply never to judge any sin. Well, Paul caring about this now commands them to carry out dealing with this matter. And this is where it starts to get heavy in verse four. He says, so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, wow, that is some pretty heavy language the Bible uses there for what was taking place in this matter of rebellion. It's speaking about bringing spiritual discipline upon this man's life for what he was doing. This is directly indicating that there is a loving goal to spare his spirit, the eternal, the important part of his life. But in order to spare him spiritually, the Bible is directing that there's at times, at maybe be an excommunication and even the idea of removing someone from the fellowship of the church in such a way whereby the gravity of that would cause them to recognize something is grossly wrong in their life in hopes that they might repent and get things right between them and the Lord. Notice a few things with me. First of all, notice the important motive or reason for doing this. What's the motive behind it all? Well, Paul says, verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the motive? To honor Jesus. When the Bible speaks of someone's name, it's referring to their reputation, who they are. Their name is their identity. So he says, look, this is to be done out of respect and to preserve and honor the reputation of Jesus. Because Jesus, again, the Bible tells us is the head of the church. The church belongs to Jesus, not to men. We always have to remember that everything we do in the church ultimately isn't about what's good for us or what we like. Does Jesus like it? Because Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church, not ours. And also Jesus gathers with his church. The Bible tells us he's together with us when we're assembled. So that means he's the guest of honor. So as a church, we should always be asking ourselves in everything that we do, Lord, you're the guest of honor. Are you enjoying this? Are you enjoying this worship service, Lord? Goes, no, I'm really not. I'm here, but I'm not really enjoying what you're doing there. 
Or, you know, we have to ask, Lord, you're the guest of honor. You're the head of this family. Are you pleased? Are you comfortable being among us as your spiritual family? These things matter. And so he says, look, the motive is to honor the Lord. And how is this also to be done? What's the authority it's to be done in? Well, he says here, it's to be done not only in the name of the Lord, but Paul says there that it's to be done in the power of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So knowing this is the will of the Lord, what's best for the person who's erring, as well as for the whole church family, after seeking the Lord for his power to deal with something that's a very difficult situation, we are then to walk forward in faith and obedience in cooperation with the power of the Lord assisting us to exercise Jesus's authority over the destructiveness of sin. And this is the idea of doing that. And what are we to do? Well, verse five says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So again, the church is what? It's the domain of Jesus's authority. And this is what Paul is getting to here. Jesus's domain, the church, is where his authority and his protection is reigning over. And there's a very wonderful thing. Again, as we're the sheep of Jesus's flock and he's the chief shepherd, we, in a sense, are functioning under his protection and his preservation. So we experience within the church family the preservation of Jesus from the devil's attacks, from many of the sinful and defiled influences that are out there in the world. As our spiritual husband, Jesus gives us a covering spiritually. And as we stay amongst the Lord's covering, we are protected and safe from a lot of what happens outside in the world that is very destructive to people's lives. And so Paul here, understanding this, that, look, we are protected within the church from evil influences because out in the world, they lie under the sway of the devil and over the sway of the evil one who's trying to rob, kill, and destroy lives. So Paul is saying, look, if this man within the church doing this refuses to change, and he wants to continue to live in this sinful practice rebelliously like an unsafe person, then Paul says, put him out from amongst the covering of the church and let him go live in the devil's domain again. Put him back out where the devil's ruling. Let him go back out into the world, out from the spiritual covering of the Lord and be fully exposed to all of Satan's pressure, to all of Satan's temptation and to all of Satan's assault. And the goal of this was that the man might become broken in repentance and ultimately come to his senses. It says this was to be done, notice verse 5, for just the destruction of his flesh. Not, Not the destruction of his spirit, the destruction of his flesh. That is to allow him to fully endure the painful consequences that sin brings into a life when it's participated in. And he says sometimes it's necessary to let the destructive experiences of sin be experienced in the flesh. It's almost as if you can hear Paul saying, look, let this man go out and indulge sin until he becomes sick and tired of what sin ultimately does to the quality of a person's life who wants to live in it. And he says, if that's what he wants to do, that's not what we do among God's people. So he says, look, if you want to function like those living in the domain of Satan, then he says, let him go out there and do it until he is sick and tired and suffers and has enough regret and hurt and heartache 
And he's just saying, allow the natural consequences of sin to bring their destructive force upon his life in hopes that the pain and suffering of indulging that sin will bring him to his senses. That someday he would wake up and recognize his need for change and sincerely get right with the Lord. That's why Paul says the destruction of his flesh, but that his spirit, the spiritual part of him, may be saved or spared in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's the temporary ruining of his physical life might bring enough regret, enough hardship, enough pain and difficulty that it would awaken his soul. And the idea here really is, is to let a person fully suffer in the flesh for their sin. Sometimes we want to protect people from that. And Paul says, no, let him experience the full suffering of that sinful conduct in such a way whereby you don't offer to protect them from the consequences because God knows sometimes people need to struggle to wake up spiritually. And even to the degree that they may even need on a rare occasion to actually be put out from among the church for a time. Now, granted, there is a process that needs to be followed in doing such a thing. It needs to be done in love and wisdom and being led by the Holy Spirit. Again, Jesus in Matthew 18 was the first one to command confronting sin when it takes place. Paul's just picking up on Jesus's idea. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, then let him be to you, Jesus said, like a heathen. The idea is put him back out among the heathen and let him experience what it means to look with that. But notice there is a spiritual responsibility. Jesus said before Paul said this, Jesus said there's a spiritual responsibility upon us as God's children to maintain a degree of spiritual accountability amongst us. And when offenses and sin happens, that sin is to be confronted. It's not to be something we brush under the rug or we don't talk about or we don't deal with. No, there's a progression that's to be addressed, starting with one-on-one dealing with resolution. Somebody sins against you. There's a sin that transpires. Jesus said, you go to that person. It's your spiritual responsibility to go to that person individual to individual and talk to them about the sin and about the offense. And Jesus said, if they listen, you can work it out and pray together and they repent and apologize. You forgive. Great. You've won your brother. Things are things have been resolved now. If they don't want to listen, they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to resolve it. And he says, sometimes you got to then get two or three mature believers and bring them to put a little pressure on and say, look, maybe some mediation is necessary here. And sometimes that's another step where somebody else has to help mediate between two people, something that's going on. But he says, if they still won't listen, they're still being rebellious. Then you bring it to the church. If, the, if they're still being rebellious, then he says, you may have to put them out of the church. I think Paul was just picking up on what Jesus discussed here. Now, again, is this kind of thing easy? Absolutely not. It's not easy going to somebody one-on-one, isn't it? When they sin against you, a lot of Christians are disobedient even in that, sadly. You know, somebody wants to tell you what happened. Have you ever gone and talked to the person yet? Well, no, but, but have you ever addressed it with them? Have you ever gone to them and sat down with them eye-to-eye, face-to-face, and done the hard thing to talk about what happened? And, and that's the first step. 
before you tell others or bring others or get them involved. That's not easy. How much more is it difficult when you literally have to come to the place where after effort, after effort, after effort, you actually have to remove somebody from the fellowship of the church? How much harder is it to do something like that on a rare occasion when it may may be necessary? And I can tell you something. In 26 years of ministry and 21 of those years being a senior pastor, on a few rare occasions, I've had to exercise the faith to participate in this kind of 1 Corinthians 5 process. And I can tell you, it is always heartbreaking. It is always hard. And it's something that has to be worked through very patiently with a process and efforts. But I can tell you this in hindsight, something that I've seen is that God can use this for the best of not only his church, but also sometimes for the best of the person. Because sometimes a real spiritual breakthrough can transpire. And we have to trust God's ways in faith and obedience, even when they're not easy to observe. And, and we may be shocked sometimes that we would actually have to deal with and address this kind of stuff. But sadly, on occasion, it does transpire. I remember one particular circumstance when I was pastoring the church back at Calvary Chapel of York. There was a young man who was struggling for a while, got involved in substance abuse, had been raised in the Lord. His family was a part of the church. He had multiple children, but he started getting involved in drugs and was kind of becoming more sporadic. Then he was coming around the church. I noticed he wasn't coming to the sanctuary, but he was always hanging out in the lobby. And I I was working with the police chaplain, uh, with the police minister at the time as a chaplain. So I started to become a little more perceptive. I started realizing this guy's dealing drugs in our lobby. What a, I mean, I thought, that's smart. What a great place to do drug deals. Come in the lobby, have coffee in the cafe, nice people, do a drug deal. Well, I mean, ultimately, after trying to address situations, deal with situations, minister to them, finally, the straw that broke the camel's back, Easter Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, he's out front on our patio in front of our main entrance smoking a bong on Easter Sunday morning. So between the two services, I had to grab my assistant pastor. I said, that's it. We, we need to throw him out. I did it right between the two services on Easter Sunday. I said, walk to the back of the parking lot with me and Tim, because he's bigger than me, just in case you don't like what I'm about to tell you. And I just had to address it. So when you know what's right, what's wrong, if you want to go run with the dogs, dude, go, go run with the dogs. But I cannot allow you for the sake of the rest of the church family and wives and children. I just, you, you can't do that here. And if you're not here to worship Jesus, then you're gone. And when you're ready to worship Jesus, you come back to me and, and let's see if there's repentance. And you're more than welcome to worship with us again. You know, it's sad that these kind of issues time to time can transpire, but we have to trust that God's way is the right way. And it may be the difficult way, but it ultimately Paul says, look, as he goes on, verse six, you're glorying over this. He says, it's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So just like a little bit of leaven needed to was needed to just be inserted to completely leaven the entire loaf of the entire loaf of of bread. What they do is they take a little bit of yeast. They stick it in there to that larger loaf. And ultimately, it would spread around. And through really kind of what was the putrefying or rotting process is the gases would spread and it would cause the, the bread to rise. And leaven's always used as a type of sin in the Bible. And Paul's saying, don't you know that this is a perfect illustration of what happens with sin also? Just like a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says, can't you see the analogy? Just a little bit of sin, if you allow it to become a part of your life, if you allow it to become a part of your family, 
if you allow it to become a part of the church family, he says it will spread in its rotting effect. It will begin to permeate and gradually influence and defile on a larger level because sin always spreads in its polluting influence. It always rots and brings further rot and causes more and more areas to become defiled. So Paul says in light of this, verse 7, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. So in light of the analogy, he says, look, it's important for the church, he says, to purge out this leavening effect of sin that was taking place in the midst of the church. The old way of operating was not working, Paul's saying. This ignoring the issue and letting the leaven continue to spread, accepting the presence of sin, Paul says, that's the old way you've been doing things, but it's time for that to stop. And he says, the new way that needs to come to pass, you need a new beginning is that you've got to handle this matter so that you can have a fresh start and become like that unleavened loaf of bread once again. Again, not that it's a church that's free from sin generally, but that the church, again, would be back in a place where they weren't being passive regarding embracing sinful activity that was being done very defiantly why someone still wanted to be participating in the church family life. So he says, going on in verse 7, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul reminds them that Christ was the fulfillment of the Passover feast from the Old Testament, like that Passover lamb that had to be sacrificed. And Paul's saying that should motivate us to purge out the leaven of sin from among us as God's people. He says there in verse, excuse me, verse seven, Christ became our Passover, that is our Passover lamb that was sacrificed for us. And again, you remember the Passover feast instituted in Exodus 12 where God told the people that what they were to do was to put to death a sacrificial or substitutional lamb, and they were to apply that blood over the door, you know, way of their house. And whoever was within that house, in faith, trusting in that blood atonement, that the wrath of the death angel would pass over them and they wouldn't experience judgment. And the Bible tells us that this was a perfect picture of the fulfillment of what Jesus would ultimately do. He became our ultimate Passover lamb. That's why John said regarding Jesus that he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look, Paul is trying to say here using this analogy, since Christ did this to remove sin from us, this should motivate us to want to honor him in regards to at times removing sin from us practically when it's necessary in our lives. What was part of the annual celebration of Passover? It was connected to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where what they would do is they would go through their house and they would purge their homes of all sources of leaven. And that pictured sin being removed in its influence from their families. Well, in light of this spiritual picture, what Jesus did and what they did with purging the leaven from their home, Paul says in verse 8, let us therefore keep the feast. The idea is in a spiritual way, not with the old leaven or the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread now of sincerity and truth. In essence, I think what Paul's trying to say is for the Christian, we should be basically keeping the spiritual actions that they took part in, in the Passover feast with unleavened bread, where we, in an ongoing way, in our personal life, 
in our families, as well as among the church family, where we periodically go through as is necessary. And like the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we purge sin from amongst us, whether it's attitudes that are sinful, such as malice, which was hatred and anger and unforgiveness, or whether it's repenting from sinful behavior, things that are just necessary where we're turning away from wickedness, Paul says here that there's some sinful action that needs to be stopped, and instead that we be characterized by sincerity and by living in truth. Look what Paul says, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So apparently Paul had already written another letter to this church prior to 1 Corinthians, which did not make it into the canon of Scripture. But Paul refers to that letter here, and he says, look, in that first letter, I already instructed you to some degree about this matter that's still going on there. I already instructed you in a prior letter, he says, not to what? Keep company with sexually immoral people. That is not to continue to spend time socially with people if they're going to choose to live in conscious defiance of the word of God, in deliberate rebellion to what God's will is on a particular matter that is very clear-cut, such as ongoing sexual sin. Paul says, verse 10, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, Paul says, if you did that, you'd have to go out of the world. Paul says, look, don't misunderstand. I'm not talking about abstaining from interactions with unsafe people out in the world. Paul says that wouldn't be fair anyway. People who aren't saved, they're in the dark. They don't have the Holy Spirit illuminating them inwardly. They don't have a copy of the word of God as a standard for their conduct. They don't have the Lord's presence working in their life. And they don't profess to have a relationship with God. Nor do unsaved people say that they desire to follow the Lord or honor the Lord. So Paul says it wouldn't be fair to abstain from fellowship with them. Paul says, quite honestly, if you abstain from people that were sinning, because that's what sinners do, Paul says, you'd have to leave the planet. (laughs) I'm not saying to do that. Look, I think that's a good reminder for us as well, because sometimes as Christians, we embrace rebellious Christians and we ignore spending time with broken sinners out in the world. That's what Jesus did a whole lot of. The world needs us to have some degree of interaction with them. How else are they going to come to know Jesus? We're to be light to the world. People who live in the world, sometimes we're we're so annoyed or bothered or grossed out by their sin, we almost become a little so self-righteous. We like insulate ourselves from everybody out in the world, and we want to do our little us four and no more church club. And the reality is all the sinners out in the world, they're disgusting. Well, they're sinners. Didn't you live that way once? I did. (laughs) And so easily, I have to find myself on occasion saying, well, be careful. Look, those people need light. And Paul says, look, I'm not telling you to not interact with the world. They need the light of Christ. But he says, verse 11, this is what I'm addressing in this situation. I've written to you, he says, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral. And then he goes back through a similar list again, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler, or a drunkard or an extortioner, and not even to eat with such a person. Notice the qualifying mark here, and please don't miss this, in the instruction. The criteria for taking this strong stand to break off relational interaction. He says this is to be done, verse 11, what he's describing, with anyone 
that means no matter who they are, with anyone named a brother or sister, the idea clearly is, the criteria, someone who openly professes to be a brother or sister in Christ. Someone who claims the name of Christ as their Savior and their Lord and says, I am a Christ follower. He says if they claim to be a Christ follower and a follower of Jesus, then they need to be held to the standard of what a follower of Jesus is supposed to live like. If they say they're a part of God's family, they're to be held accountable by the rest of God's family. Again, this command is not for unsafe people. It's not. So be careful. Oh, my unsaved relative, they're living in sin. I'm going to cut them off. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Be, that, that, be careful there. This is someone who claims to be a Christian. They profess they're a follower of Christ, and then they live in contradiction to that after professing that they believe the word of God. I'm a Christian, but he says, no, that's the issue that we're dealing with here. These are the occasions, yet the person, though claiming to be a Christian, lives in a continual life practice of openly and consciously living in a sinful way. And notice, Paul says it's not a matter of even just sexual sin, because you notice he then expands the list as we get to this point. And look, I don't think it's an exhaustive list. Only the people who are drunkards or revilers, and well, oh, okay, that means I can do this still and be a Christian? No, 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 no. Paul's just expanding beyond sexual sin to say, look, my point is it's not just sexual sin as well. Any open practice of defiance in sin against the word of God falls into the same category. And what are we told to do? Paul says to not keep company nor even eat a meal with that person. The picture there, very evident, is God instructs we're to detach from having relational interactions with that person any longer. That is, as long as they're going to keep on that path of rebellion, if they're going to continue to say they're a Christian but live in sinful rebellion, then what is necessary is that we, at a time, need to inform them, look, I love you. I do not agree with what you're doing. It violates the word of God. And therefore, because I love you and God does not approve, nor do I approve of what you're doing, I can't go down that path with you any longer. And I need you to know that this is serious enough of a matter that I can't help you stay comfortable in your sin. And I don't want you to think I'm participating in your sin. And so therefore, there needs to come a detachment. I love you. I will be praying for you. But I cannot continue to have the same relational connection with you because what you're doing is disapproved by God. And I need to take a strong enough stand for you to understand that. And again, the idea here is that by doing something that serious, God's heart is that the seriousness of that and the weightiness of that, that a person would feel such a shock that we would actually cut off relational interaction with them out of honoring the Lord, that the hope would be that they would realize how serious their infraction is and that they would go, wow, maybe I should repent. Maybe I am wrong. And so God lays this out for us in such a way whereby I may have a, a hope of bringing restoration long term. And ultimately, we'll see in 2 Corinthians, uh, that's actually what happens with this man. Look as he wraps up verse 12 and 13. He says, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? That is, those in the world. Again, he says, that's, that's God's business. Do you not judge those inside? But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from among yourselves the evil Person, So Paul says, look, 
Judging those outside in the world, really, that's God's business. But he says, what God entrusts to us as his family is, he says, judging those who are inside the family. Why? Because when someone's a part of the family, families take care of one another. Families get involved in each other's lives when it's necessary to love and protect one another. He quotes from Deuteronomy 17, quite heavy. He says, put away from yourselves the evil person. That scripture was in the Old Testament to put the the rebels in the society and congregation outside of the congregation so they did not harm the rest of the congregation of Israel. The idea is that you put a person out for the sake of the health of the rest of the people involved. It was an action of love. Look, let me say this morning, perhaps in your life right now, the Lord is asking you to do something that you know is right. And just like in this situation, and I hope it's not this situation, but maybe the Lord's asking you to do something that you know is right. But it's not going to be easy to do it. Let me encourage you. I think one of the main truths of this passage, trust the Lord, do what's right, and leave the results with God. Because if you abstain from doing what's right and take the path of ease, it will just bring bigger problems down the road. And and none of us want that. Do what's right, not what's easy. Leave the rest to God in an act of faith.